0: Live from 91.3 WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio, it's Filmically Perfect with J. Todd Anderson, George Williman, and me, your host, Nikki Dakota. exciting is about to happen and ladies and gentlemen this is
1: one fine movie
0: (laughs) the exciting thing is indeed filmically perfect you're tuned to filmically perfect i'm your host nikki dakota joined in the studio today by the lovely truly talented and uh, even some hidden talents which we will get to in shows in the future he is the keeper of all films Fact Films Facts and also the Nitrate Film Archivist. And how many movies have
1: you seen by now, George? Eight. Eight million movies. No, he just, just eight. eight.
0: Is but I've seen him a lot. George Williman, <laughs> welcome. Hello, everyone. Also on my left, your right. It is the uh, the uh, we call him storyboard artist to the Cohen brothers. Weighing in
1: with too much
0: weight. <laughs> <laughs> storyboard artist weight. to uh, so many of the films that we know and love, and also friend of the show. He is the show. He is Mr. Hi, J. Thank you very much, Todd. Anderson gentlemen so nice to be with North you here by today Northwest
1: today for a and it's uh,
0: no normal film there's a lot about this film that distinguishes it and that is of course why we have gathered here we speak only of perfect film that's
1: right and this movie is one of the greatest cinematic events ever to hit the screen now, this is a delightful movie I mean it's just so much fun. I defy anybody to watch this movie and get bored. And if you watch this movie and you're bored, then you're watching too many video games where people get <laughs> shot and killed. This movie has an indelible story, it's got character, it's got conflict, and mistaken identity. In fact, it has just about every convention that Hitchcock handled throughout his career, up to nineteen fifty. It, right, it's a
2: beautiful amalgamation of all the
1: all things hitch. So it is. So many <laughs> shots that you've seen before in other movies. And, and remember we talked about Strangers on a Train, which was our Hitchcock primer. Yeah. Um, this is something where you, it's not too long after that. Maybe 12 years, 13 years after that. I don't know. Was it 1959? Nine. nine years after. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're going to see Hitchcock hitting his stride. Like, although Strangers on a Train is a very, very perfect film. You see Hitchcock evolving into this filmmaker that nobody would ever, ever have planned on him becoming.
0: An Alfred Hitchcock classic indeed, and it is uh, notable, and we must note, that these films are not just randomly chosen from a hat of names of films. we have a
1: boardroom and... The filmically perfect uh, board of review goes through there and they send it up to George and I and then we say, Yeah, that's it.
0: There are rules and gentlemen. Yes. The rules are Well, North
1: by Northwest creates the world in it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, North by Northwest retains its meaning and entertainment value. And North by
2: Northwest will never be put on any quote on a list. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, it is it is
1: perfect in its own state. It is just, just dapper dandy. It I has really, it is is in its own scale, like no movie ever made.
0: And what's, by the way, is the origin? Why why the name North by Northwest? What is that about?
1: Well, actually, it's kind of a red herring
2: in a lot of ways. But so as why- far as I can find, as far as I can find, there is one scene in the movie where Leo G. Carroll takes Cary Grant, who is the star and the main character of the film, and is going to put him on a plane that's going to take him up to South Dakota, up to the um, up to the monuments, the uh, Rushmore. Oh, Mount sure, Rushmore. yeah, yeah. And they're basically Putting him on Northwest Airlines, and it's going to be flying north, so he's going north by Northwest.
0: Okay, so that's it—just that one direction in one portion of the film. That's the, what I found. By the way, anyways, those monuments yes. were in South Dakota. Just that's, so you I know, did I say South Dakota? Well, we'll we'll, we'll check the tape now, later. You know, but as a drawing <laughs> your
1: screenplay down on a table somewhere. And, okay, what's it called? North by Northwest. <laughs> hey, you know, now we think of this movie as a classic movie, but before. It became a classic movie because it was a Hitchcock project, you know, a banal title like North by Northwest. Sure. It has well, all sorts of meaning, now. and then Bro- it,
0: it even spawned. Um, speaking of rule number three, by the way, there's a music festival in Austin, Texas now called South by Southwest, which is a play on that title. Right. So, how cool is that? Yeah, they, uh, uh,
2: from what I understand, this was a, a Hitchcock project practically from the word go, because uh, Hitchcock had wanted to work with Ernest Lehman, the screenwriter, for a long time. And, in fact, tried to get him involved in another project that Layman just wasn't interested in him. So Hitchcock finally said, look, I want to do a project with you. You come up with something and we'll do it. And he basically had like two or three ideas. He had the idea of mistaken identity and something in the U.N. building and Mount Rushmore. And he came over this incredible running story of, of mistaken identity and the U.N. and Mount Rushmore.
0: What a happy way to go about that! How interesting to just take. But a it few. was a
2: perfect. I mean, the two of them were just perfect together. And this is this is Hitchcock on all cylinders with all of his
1: all of his ducks in a row
2: because he's got but he Bernard was, Herman doing the music yep, and they were great. And all these and people Grant. that he had
1: made re- these wonderful relationships that were craftsmen like these guys and they were all with Hitchcock and they all kind of understood him mm-hmm. and they knew how to work with him. Um, and it's very apparent in this film because this film is so. Balanced,
0: so like a perfect so storm. So visually
1: and... balanced, it it sets on every precipice for just the right amount of time, and then it falls off. And then it it's just to this day, it's just dazzling how sharp, clear, and balanced this film is from a cinematic point of view.
0: It looks beautiful, uh, George. Will you give us? Uh, so we we touched on a few of the things. but give us a little mm-hmm. a little flow of the action in the this action, movie.
2: The story basically surrounds this uh, gentleman named Roger O Thornhill. Uh, who's played by Cary Grant? Uh, probably never more dapper than he is in this movie, and he always was dapper. But uh, you know, Cary Grant is is w- at this point was getting into his later stages of his career. He'd been in movies like twenty some years. He's getting a little older, but he's just really, really he's in his mid fifties. Great in this movie, he's perfect for it. You know, and and he is a, a business executive. He's an advertising guy. advertising guy. He goes to lunch one day. I mean, it's very very in its beginning. He goes to lunch. And it turns out that there are there's these people looking for someone named George Kaplan. And they send a messenger in calling out for George Kaplan. Well, at about the same moment, uh, Thornhill, I can't remember, either needs to make a phone call or it needs He's to... He's
0: going to call his mother to right, tell her to his rearrange mother. the schedule. And
2: so as the kids <laughs> come through yelling, Ge- George Kaplan, George Kaplan, Thornhill goes... Waves his hand I guess I better tell you What I'm doing Because he's waving his hand I'm waving my hand George is (laughs) waving his hand So he waves his hand I'm waving right back to him (laughs) (laughs) So he waves his hand And the two guys Who see him do this Immediately think There's Kaplan So they go And they get Thornhill And they take him out Into the country To this big mansion Where he meets up With James Mason Who plays one of the Finest roles he's ever played That's right And James cool villain. And the only thing that 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 that, um, that Thornhill discovers right off the bat is that whatever wherever he is, the house belongs to some guy named Lester Townsend. So when he meets James Mason, of course he thinks that he's Lester Townsend, and so uh, Townsend or James Mason comes in and starts you know going going over this long rambling dialogue about you know how tricky you are and how we've been looking for you. This, that, and the other, and and because Thornhill has no idea what's going on. And we in fact have a little sound clip from this scene. Yes, we do. Showing some of the the sort of bantering back and forth between Cary Grant, James Mason, and Martin Landau playing.
0: <laughs> Leonard. Uh, Leonard, have you met our distinguished guest? He's a well tailored one, isn't he? My secretary is a great admirer of your methods, Mr. Kaplan elusiveness, however misguided. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Did you call me Kaplan? I know you're a man of many names, but I'm perfectly willing to accept your current choice. Current choice? My name is Thornhill. Roger Thornhill. There's never been anything else. Of course. So obviously your friends picked up the wrong package when they bundled me out here in the car. Do sit down, Mr. Kaplan. I told you I'm not Kaplan, whoever he is. I'm... Excuse me. Yes?
2: The guests are here, dear.
0: Look after them. I'll be
2: with you in a few minutes. And the woman at the end there was Mrs. Lester Townsend, uh, who is was yeah, inviting the guests in. And, and it, you really don't know exactly what these people are after. But but They never tell you. Roger just... Thorne, it's not really important what
1: they're after. The whole yeah. thing is the caper. That I'm was looking. the whole Hitchcock thing, what he called a MacGuffin, which is they're after something. You just know they're after something. You don't really know what it is. A MacGuffin.
0: I love that idea. It doesn't matter. It kind of
1: throws him into this this whole
2: this whole intrigue. Um, They decide to to get rid of. I mean, they decide to. They can't get any information out of Kaplan. Quotation marks. So they decided to get rid of him. They get him really drunk.
1: Kind of force him drunk. Yeah. And one of the most marvelous back projection (laughs) drunk driving incidents in in modern film. They put him in a sports car and send him down a mountain. And they have this backward projection, which Hitchcock loves. The right. back
0: projection is where you're shooting an interior, and there's all there's also something actually being shown on a screen. Right, oh there's age, uh, and he
2: just drives the steering and he just steering wheel. And like he's
1: driving. Are yeah.
0: you being sarcastic, or is it really good?
1: Well, you know, normally it's phony baloney. But in a Hitchcock movie, it works. Yeah. Uh, somehow, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's loaded. He loves it. Hitchcock uses right. it all the well, time.
2: And Hitchcock himself often said that he was a very lazy filmmaker and that this was just an easy way. He didn't have to go out and build a, a picture car and do all this complicated work. They could just do it on the set. And it accomplished what he wanted to get done, and it moved the show along.
1: You know, so. you know, when it came to prisoners, Hitchcock didn't take any when it came to story. <laughs> yeah. You know? If you were in the way of the story, you got reduced to a cigarette lighter, you know, many times. Reduced to what other things did people become for Hitchcock's Delight? A pair of glasses. A airplane in this movie, which which haunts you, a pair of glasses. You were reduced to an inanimate object just to, so Hitchcock could say, I am the filmmaker. You are the audience.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to have to get into that later because I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. But they get the guy drunk and shove him over the edge of a cliff. Well,
2: not over that. He, he survives. He manages to, to get his car under control and wake up enough to survive it. But he knows that these guys are after him. So he goes to see his mother, this very wealthy woman, Jessie Royce Landis, who in actuality, the actress is only like six or seven years old. Older than Cary <laughs> uh, Grant. Older than him, you
0: know,
1: like
2: murder and, sure. and he finds that he cannot extricate himself from this problem. They are after him all the time. So as the film progresses, he is constantly being pursued by these people. There's one point where they have him and his mother. And he tells his mother, these guys are trying to kill me. Nobody know, believes nobody him. Nobody believes him. And the mother kind of confronts the two guys and goes, my son says you're trying to kill him. And everybody everybody's laughing, oh, laughing, ha-ha. laughing. He manages to get away from them. He ends up finding that this Lester Townsend, that whose house he was held captive at, works at the United Nations. So he goes to the UN, and he finds the real Lester Townsend. And and as he goes to meet him to try and figure out what's going on, Lester Townsend is murdered. He gets a knife stabbed in his back, and of course, pictures are taken. And Thornhill is now a murderer. He's accused. Of it's all very Lester comical
1: Townsend. too. It's very funny. Yeah. And,
0: <laughs> I know you just can't believe this series. He of, plays yeah. it
1: all with this deft sense of humor through this whole movie. Grant. Yeah. Deft ballet of humor. <laughs> That's what it is. Just, he also becomes involved
2: now with with Eve Marie Saint, who is the archetypical Hitchcock blonde who may or may not be on the right side. It'll, you know, find out like she's it. working for our team. Yeah. You know? But uh, <laughs> which team is that, yeah. And and then so much going on in this movie. There well, uh, is. Uh, it's very he gets, complex. He gets deposited out in the middle of nowhere, and a crop-dusting plane comes after him. Which is the
0: famous that's shot. the famous scene. Yeah, which we'll
2: talk about. Yeah. And, and then he, he meets up with Leo G. Carroll, who's the head of the good guys, and that's when they put him on the plane going north by northwest, and he ends up the big denouement at, the, uh, at
1: Mount Rushmore. Yeah. In, now, you watch this movie, and this is proof, that filmmakers evolve and get better because Mount Rushmore has been done a couple times in his movies. Saboteur, right, George? The Statue of Liberty. That's Statue of Liberty, yeah. But it's the same thing. He's yeah using the monuments, idea, using yeah. big monuments. And then you watch in Strangers of a Train. He's got his hands on there. He puts his foot on his hand in there. And then you have you have the weighty vanishes. You know mm-hmm. this this house. They come back to the house and it's empty. It's the same thing. It's. The filmmaker seems to make the same movie over and over again. And he's trying to perfect it. And Hitchcock is so obvious in this movie that he's making a better movie. It's all there. He's 39 taken... steps. Yeah, it's that, um, it's that consistent. Suspicion. Uh, it's
2: the all... consist- continuous and consistent refinement of the same
1: ideas. Notorious. Which I love.
0: It's like he's taken all of his movies and taken the really good bits. The good that good bits. Really, and he's really... combined
1: it together. And, and it's all there. It's, yeah. it's all there. Yeah. Um, and it's just marvelous. It never lets you down for a second, like the crop dusting scene. And when we started making movies, when I started working with Joel and Ethan Cohen, excuse me, we um, we deferred a lot to Hitchcock's stuff. We looked at the
0: storyboards, and when I was reading, he storyboarded that, as well. He, he yeah, was an he early did, I don't proponent. Think he did it as
1: elaborate as Joel and Ethan do, but um, he did storyboards. And I remember studying those things, and I remember reading that. That whole crop dusting scene started out as a combine. Mm. (laughs) It's really hard to fly a combine. I know, but but it's still that idea. It came from this mechanical, which you see in a lot of Spielberg's movies like Duel and Jaws. There was this ominous machine that had no life and nobody was guiding it. And that's how that idea, I understand, came out of a combine. And then it became aerial. And. He sets this amazing stage right out of the gate. If I recall, you never see the
2: pilot of the plane, I don't think. The plane is just, it's the plane. It's like there's not like a
1: human force behind it. The semi-truck that almost runs him down. No driver. You don't see it. Mm -hmm. At the end, there's a wide shot. You see where the driver gets out. But he sets this marvelous place. And then he does something that hardly any filmmakers can get away with nowadays. He sets this pace, and he walks onto it. And it's slow. That whole airplane scene is so methodically and slow. I bet it's five or six minutes long, mm-hmm. don't you think?
2: It is. And it builds very... Because he's out there. And he's out there for a long time. Other people come and get on a bus yeah. while he's standing there waiting. It's one and the plane is way, way off, off there it. in the distance. <laughs>
1: and you see him running through there. And I've, I've only seen simulated storyboards, but... You can just see how tightly he thought out that scene, and it just works like a million bucks to this day. It's not overly dramatic. You don't see a lot of carnage like you see in a lot of modern movies, but it's methodically built. And And Hitchcock himself always said, and I think this is
2: borne out by some of the papers and things that have been released, that, that when he got a project, I mean, the first thing he would do is he would start working out the details, how he wanted to shoot it, how he wanted to lay out the shots, how he wanted the camera to move. He would do all that so that when day one of shooting came, he was already and he said for himself as a filmmaker, the interesting part ended the day the shooting began. Because he'd already made the movie in his I love head. I that
0: idea. And he already laid that. it out. Yeah.
2: And so then he just kinda had to mechanically go through actually
1: making
0: the, the drudgery film. of the drudgery this of actually <laughs> making the film. Well We're, I can
1: see where you because know, I can't tell you how many times I've been on the set and this is very boring compared to the storyboard sessions, you know. Mm-hmm. Because it is we go through a lot more material in a storyboard session we do on the set um, because you're doing takes over and over and over again. But he had a lot of control over his actors by his preparation, his methods, and how he did
2: things. And that's that's one thing that coming from – I mean myself having been in you know, one film and, and, and JT having worked on so many that what so many people don't realize – they see the shows that show the glamour of filmmaking, and the exciting world of filmmaking. But making a film, actually ma- out there on the set, making a film, is one of the most boring, repetitive, difficult <laughs> jobs in
1: the world, and it, it just doesn't pain. make any sense. It <laughs> doesn't Not make growing any sense. soybeans to feed people or anything is mindless entertainment. And because, it's just entertainment. Work. and because you know, to
2: to make things run easier for the production. You can't shoot in order. He's like, okay, here's here we're doing this bean field scene. So we got to shoot everything in the bean field today. And then we got to shoot everything in the drugstore tomorrow. And they may not go together, but then you have to have everyone on the same page, you know, thinking the same. Here's All those actors have story. to be
1: there one time. Right. Yeah. So
2: like for North by Northwest, Cary Grant playing Thornhill, if they're not, you know, and I'm sure they probably didn't shoot in order either. They would build sets and shoot. And so he would have to think mentally and Hitchcock would have to keep on top of these people and say okay at this point in the story this is what your relationship with these characters is and this is how you react to them you you know you like them you hate them so again and you know for a film of this magnitude and with as much action going on in this it's truly
1: amazing how how beautifully it all comes together and how well it is held up over the you years you can just see that the man behind this camera has objective experience because the really good filmmakers that I've met in my lifetime, they can watch their movie over and over and over again and not get tired of it while they're building it and they're making it. And you could just see that Hitchcock was in it for the long run. He had it held out in his head and heard various methods of him charting pace by putting music notes on the walls and all sorts of crazy things that he would utilize to hold the movie in his head and it's so relevant when you watch this movie, a movie that has been thought out and, and tracked visually before it's been shot really holds its balance clip completely through. It doesn't all of a sudden cut to close ups for some no good reason. You know, they thought it out this movie. I never see a soft spot in it. The only thing I, that I always think is very funny about North Carolina Northwest is when, you know, Hitchcock knows that things have to happen a little faster in the back of the film than in the front of the film because you can't, do common sense cutting in the back of the film. You can in the front of the film when you're setting things up. But in the scene where they're coming from the big house and they're getting in the airplane, well, they get in the car and then they cut to a couple close-ups and all of a sudden he's up there. See, Hitchcock doesn't screw around. He wants to get that story going. And, and he knows you can you could probably have that car drive all the way to the airplane in the front of the film but not in the back of the film.
0: By that right. time, but he knows it's exactly how to cut it so it just lands like a
1: cat on four feet. No. We're
0: talking about North by Northwest, Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece from 1959. Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, James Mason, and um, visually, it is it is remarkable, and it really shows. And I've learned so much from you, film guys, in particular. Hold on, let me get that box yeah. of medals out. <laughs> <laughs> Telling you what, and I love the notion of just hearing you explain it just now about the director's job of picturing it first. And and George, here,
1: here you go, little girl. <laughs>
0: Thanks, J. Todd. You're always so generous and kind. The, the, the idea is the director is to keep the people on the vision that he had that he laid down initially to keep those people in that moment and on that. And Jay Todd, with your, um, you know, unique perspective on the art of storyboarding, is You're looking fabulous.
1: at a guy, a guy who has been at it for a long time here. This is a master, master filmmaker.
0: When was Palmer. his first movie? Oh, about
2: 1923, 24.
0: So we're talking thirty,
1: and five, it's all jam packed in *North by Northwest*. Later, and then you know a couple years later, he did *Psycho*, where he completely broke out of this this evolution that he had been building, and then he he just went in a completely different direction. He went
2: really low ball on on. I mean, because you know, this this film this *North by Northwest* movie. is is like top drawer. I mean, it's you know full color, New York City location shooting at the um,
1: plaza and. It was yeah. shot in
2: VistaVision. This no. is and what is that again? Man. What's VistaVision? VistaVision? Is was this high definite quote high definition film system that ran horizontally through the camera it would give you a great big frame uh, that was like eight perforations long,
1: and it's uh, exceptionally good for action because there's no strobing,
2: right? And it was it would just give you a really beautiful image, and you could then you know re- reformat it into regular thirty five millimeter. And it could be shown either kind of a widescreen or non.
0: Oh, it was it was an
2: amazing process. It was kind of expensive, which I think is why it kind of went away. It has come back recently for special effects use. Uh-huh. Yeah, they just use it. Um, I think digital though is pretty much going to do away yeah. with with VistaVision. But a again, we process. spoke
1: about uh, rear screen projection, and Hitchcock utilizes it again. And this movie uses on Mountain Rushmore, and you'll say, "Oh, it looks fake," but you're too busy looking at the story, you know, and doing okay, yeah,
2: the Park Service would not let them anywhere near Mount Rushmore.
1: Yeah. Really? So they had to
2: build they had to build their own they had to build the forest that's down around Mount Rushmore and the then Black build Hills. parts of the big faces
1: to uh to uh to jump around on. Just, Why
0: wouldn't they? That's so bizarre. I just I've
1: always thought that that was just a terrific idea to um, mm-hmm. to have these big noses, big noses and stuff in the background. It's just it's just so much fun to watch that and Leonard's just rotten one of the little, little, this this is like the movie before the James Bond movies took off. This is one of the first big you know we're going to we're going to do the Cold War now, boys. Right. We're going to make movies about Cold War. And that's what this is about cuz they have wonderful there's all sorts of wonderful little things in this where they say Leo G. Carroll starts telling them why everything's happening, and then they start up an airplane engine in the background, and you don't hear a word <laughs> he's saying. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, it's
1: it's this way. This is why you gotta say River Marie saying and then they you see them talking for like three minutes, mm-hmm. and that's how he bypasses tons <laughs> of story, you know?
0: It's brilliant.
1: Now
2: this also has another very famous, famous Hitchcockian moment. Uh, Hitchcock always was very deft at handling handling sexual uh, innuendo in these, especially in these later fifties movies. I mean, there's like the fireworks (laughs) in uh, To to, to Catch a Thief. This one is one of the. I mean, this one at the very end. You know, when everything is sorted out, and we've got uh, we've got Thornhill and and Eve Marie Saint, they get married. (laughs) And they go on their honeymoon they're on a train. <laughs> oh,
0: the they're in the bir- they're in their little upper berth and they're in the train
2: they start kissing and then the last shot
0: <laughs>
2: Actually it does sound a bit like that. <laughs> the last classic shot of the film is this big long phallic looking locomotive Diesel going locomotive. into a tunnel.
0: <laughs>
1: so, and, was that's that the first and that's use how it is. Yeah. Is that it? I don't know if it's the first use, but it's the most <laughs> memorable use. We sure remember it. it yep. Is. And it just sits right in that movie like it was made for it, man. He kisses her and goes up in the berth. And,
2: <laughs> and I guess there was an extra shot originally <laughs> at the end with all the crew on the train smoking cigarettes afterwards. But
0: uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, North by Northwest, a perfect movie by all accounts. 1959. And then Bernard Herrmann
1: score just drives this thing like, like nobody's business all the way through this movie. The Bernard Herrmann score just keeps pounding away with his intensity that just will not let go. It's so good. And Herman,
2: Herman and Hitchcock were just, they were perfectly made for each other. And it was so sad that they kind of parted on not so great terms. I can't Why? remember exactly which film it was, but there was a one of the films from the 60s. Um, the The studio was upset because they said that Herman's music wasn't good for making a, an album from.
0: Oh, well, this oh, made for a movie. That's why. I,
2: well, yeah. they wanted to sell an album. Well, they had new kinds of suits at the table back
1: yeah. then. You know, the I mean, suits were you, going. You, away. Can't, you
2: couldn't get much better than Bernard Herman. I mean, there's
1: so many. And then on top of this created. movie, you got Saul Bass doing doing the, the titles, cre- the, the credits in the beginning, which are, were always very interesting.
0: It's like uh, angular, very geometric.
1: Yeah. Well, it's all things moving in different directions, north by you northwest know. angles. Things mm-hmm. are moving, yeah, at different angles.
0: Uh, let's talk about the rules. Creates the world. I'd, I'd say.
1: Well, they certainly do, and they sure exhibit the new Cold War right in front of us. Right? after, after who knows?
0: Who do you trust? Why is this person out to this get person? me? He's
1: not the real person, you know. It's it's everything's in there. The little matches, you know. The, the yeah, all the ROT, all the stuff that you know Hitchcock handles. It's all in this movie.
0: And he does, of course, make the cameo. Right, or, right, right. Or, and, it's always. a great
2: cameo too, because it's right at the beginning, and it's it's one. He must have been really proud of this movie, because I can't think of a whole other. Of many other cameos that where he appears and his name appears on the screen on at the top same time. Of him. Yeah. But he gets his gets a bus
1: door slammed in his face and he's right when it standing says, at the, yeah right on the end of and the score, the, too, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh when you watch these later Hitchcock movies, you notice that he gets all this this verbal exposition out of the way in like uh one big round em up at the OK Corral. And then he goes on this visual tirade and he just <laughs> runs amok visually for, you know, I don't know, five or six minutes, and mm-hmm. then he comes back and regroups, and they get in the hotel room, yak, 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 kiss, kiss, and then there <laughs> he goes again. he starts, Big you know, action scene. He yeah. gets <laughs> off the bus, and he's standing out there waiting for the airplane to come, you know, and then again, mm-hmm. you know, once you catch a breath, he sits there, and he recoups, and away they go again.
0: Certainly sustains it, and uh, cultural rel- relevance, or despite any cultural changes, certainly, I mean, it's uh, it's still seen as one of the finest movies Uh, ever made so uh, here here another one well done by the film guys right here on Filmically Perfect George Willeman, our man at the Library of Congress always a pleasure thank you Uh and J. Todd Anderson storyboard artist to all the stars and friends to the little old us thank you
1: lovely to be with you Nikki
0: Dakota (laughs) until next time Filmically Perfect your favorite movie show hey see you next
1: happy
2: flopping
0: You've been listening to Filmically Perfect with J. Todd Anderson, George Williman, and me, your host, Nikki Dakota. Heard live every Friday after the noon news on 91.3 WYSO. The shows are also available for download from iTunes or can be streamed at www.wyso.org.